how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Exodus Part 1. Well, if you enjoy reading escape books, and I do, you will love the book of Exodus. It's the story of the biggest escape in history, I believe. Over two million slaves escaped from one of the most highly fortified nations in the entire world. It's a miracle. In fact, it was a series of miracles. So here we have this tremendous escape story. Moses actually saw more miracles than Abraham, Isaac and Jacob put together. It is just one string of supernatural interventions on behalf of the people. Some of the miracles sound a bit like magic, as when Moses' stick turns into a snake and then back into a stick again. But most of these miracles are clear manipulations of nature. They certainly couldn't come under that blessed title of psychosomatic miracles. They, in these instances, God is actually manipulating what he's created for the good of his people. Now, the whole event of the Exodus had a profound significance in two regards. First of all, it had national significance for the people we call Israel. This was the beginning of their national history. This was when they got their political freedom. This is when they became a sovereign nation in their own right. And though they didn't yet have a land, they were now a people, a nation, with a name of their own, the name Israel. And forever afterwards they have celebrated this event once a year. They hold their Passover, much as in America they celebrate July the 4th for the day of their independence. But it also has spiritual significance and not just national significance because this was when they discovered that their God was the God who made the whole universe and that therefore he could control what he had made for their sake. They actually came to believe that their God was more powerful than all the gods of Egypt put together. Ultimately, they would realize that their God was the only God that existed. And Isaiah keeps emphasizing that, there is no God beside me. But at this stage, they were to discover that their God was more powerful than every other God, that he was the supreme God. It's here that he has the title El Shaddai, God Almighty. But he also has a name, and it is in the book of Exodus that the nation was given his personal name. Somehow when you know someone's name, a relationship becomes more intimate and more personal. That's why you're all wearing badges with your name on, because that helps you to begin to relate in an intimate and personal way. You can peer at the badge and say, hello, Peter, and somehow that helps. And God has a name as well as many, many titles, and his name is Yahweh. I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly because I have yet to find a Jew who will tell me how to say it. They dare not even say the name in case they take it in vain. So I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it right. But the name Yahweh doesn't mean much to me. It doesn't set my heart on fire. It's, it's a funny word. It's not English. And some time ago I was praying and I said, Lord, please give me an English word 
that will convey the meaning of Yahweh to me and also give me the feelings it aroused in your people. And immediately into my mind came the name Always. I thought that's a beautiful name because Yahweh is a participle of the verb to be and, and to call God always communicates what that name really says. And that's only his first name. He has many second names. Always my provider, always my helper, always my protector, always my healer, always, always. And so that's the name I've used for God since. Uh, but the Hebrew is Yahweh. And this was when they found his name. And he gave them not only his title, El Shaddai, God Almighty, but his name. I'm always, I'm always with you. I was always here. I'm always the same. To put it another way, it's in the book of Exodus that the creator of everything became the redeemer of a few people. And it is that combination of creator and redeemer which we need to hold very firmly. I'm afraid some Christians go to the extreme of only thinking of God as creator and some only think of his redeeming power, but they belong together. The creator of the entire universe becomes the redeemer of a bunch of slaves. Now this is one of five books of Moses and when you study them, four of them are much the same and one is quite different. Just to mention that difference first, Genesis stands alone because Genesis is the only one of the five books of Moses that covers events before Moses lived. The other four all happened within his lifetime and clearly he wrote the other four. But these were a bunch of slaves who'd been 400 years in slavery without their own land, without their own money, without their own whatever. And the result was they needed to be retold their roots. I don't know if you've read Alex Haley's book, Roots. There was a man whose ancestors were sold into slavery and taken from Africa to America and became slaves and he went back to rediscover his roots before his people were slaves and he discovered them in Africa. It's a very thrilling story. Well now Moses had to write the previous history of this people for these slaves so that they knew their roots, they knew where they'd come from. And so Moses clearly collected from people's memory two things, genealogies, their family trees and stories about their ancestors. And the book of Genesis is entirely made up of such memories and Moses collected them. But with Exodus he begins his own lifetime and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy are a mixture of narrative and legislation of what happened in their history and what God said to them by way of how they should live. And it's this unique combination of narrative and legislation that characterises the four other books of Moses. And the book of Exodus is typical. The first half of it is narrative, the second half is legislation. The first half is about what God did on their behalf by the way of miracles to get them out of slavery. But the second half is about what God said and how they were to live now that they were free. The first half therefore demonstrates God's grace toward them, his free favour 
in getting them out of their problems. And therefore the second half expects them to show their gratitude for that grace by living this way. Now the reason I've emphasized that is this. Too many people, when they read the law of Moses, think that this law was their way to be redeemed by God. No, no. They were redeemed by God first and then given the law to keep by way of gratitude. Now that's a very important point. They weren't given the law first. They were set free first and then they were given the law to live by. And that's exactly the same in the New Testament too. We are redeemed and then we're told how to live holy lives. You don't become a Christian by living right first. You become a Christian by getting redeemed first and liberated and then you live right so that uh, liberation comes before legislation. They're set free and then they're told, now don't abuse your freedom, use it properly. So here they are set free from Egypt but here they enter into a covenant or a marriage with God at Sinai and it takes the form of a wedding service. God says, I will and then the people have to say, we will and literally they are married and it's called a marriage and what follows is called a honeymoon and then the marriage has to begin in the land, in the place of God's choosing. They are liberated from slavery but not so that they can do their own thing. They go into the wilderness to serve God. They are set free from slavery but for service. That's an important point. It's the same in the New Testament for Christians. We're not set free to do our own thing. We're set free to serve God, whom to serve is perfect freedom. So redemption comes before righteousness. That's the important point I want to make. The book of Exodus makes that absolutely clear. God redeems them first. Now he says, live right because I've set you free. So those are the two halves of the book of Exodus. And then I've divided the rest of it up into ten very simple portions and given them each a title because uh, I can memorize things that are simple. And uh, there are six sections in chapters 1 to 18 and four in chapters 19 to 40. And running through them, the six sections in the first half I've called multiplication and murder. That covers the incredible increase in the number of Hebrew slaves over 400 years from one family to two and a half million. That's some increase. Actually, it would only need four children in each generation for 30 generations and you can do it mathematically. So it wasn't all that multiplication but uh, they certainly became a huge number and then, of course, the boys were murdered by the Pharaoh. We'll look at all these in detail later. Bulrushes and bush, you all know the story of how Moses was taken out of the bulrushes and therefore given the name Moshe, which means drawn out because he was drawn out of the river Nile. The baby boys, of course, were thrown into the river Nile to the crocodiles, but Moses was drawn out of the river Nile. Plague and pestilence, well, that centers on Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart. Feast and firstborn, that's the origin of the Passover. We'll look at that in greater detail. Delivered and drowned is the crossing of the Red Sea, but they weren't drowned, but the Egyptian army was. 
provided and protected talks about their journey from Egypt to Sinai and some of the things that happened, how God protected them and provided for them. In a wilderness where the Egyptian army in the Yom Kippur War was perishing after three days and yet two and a half million people survived for 40 years. Again, God had to do a lot of miracles. In the second half, we have first of all the commandments and especially the Ten Commandments and these were sealed in a covenant, a marriage between God and his people and God said, I will and they said, we will and that bound them together forever. God never goes back on a covenant. And then in chapters 25 to 31, we have the fact that God is now going to live among them and therefore he needs a place to live. He needs a tent, but he needs a rather different tent from theirs or they might think he's just one of them. And so we have the specification of the tabernacle and God provides specialists, people who've never made anything but bricks up till now and now they've got to work with gold and silver and wood and God had to teach them those skills and the Holy Spirit gave those skills to people who'd never made anything but bricks before. That's a miracle. And then comes the saddest part of Exodus, the story of the golden calf when they indulged themselves and Moses had to pray most earnestly on their behalf or they'd have never got anywhere further. And finally, the book of Exodus finishes with the construction of the tabernacle, its erection and God takes up residence and the glory comes down on his tent. In Hebrew, this book is called These Are the Names. That's because it is read every year in the synagogue as all the five books of Moses are and it's read, of course, on a rolled up scroll. And the first words of the scroll are These Are the Names. And that's how they named all the five books of Moses, by the first words, so you could unroll them in the synagogue and, and get the right one. But when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they gave it a different name. They used two Greek words, ex, which means out, and hodos, which means way. I don't know if Hoddesdon, the place down the road, is connected with that or not, but ex hodos means out way. And you would have seen it in the Greek theatre where over at that door you can see the word exit. That's a Latin word, exit. The Greek word would be ex hodos or way out. And so this book was called The Way Out, the ex hodos. And it's just been slightly corrupted in English to exodus. And that's why we call it exodus. But I'm sure you realised it was the way out. It sounds too like exit. Right, well, let's look at the first half of Exodus in this talk, chapters 1 to 18. There are many so-called problems in this first half. It is so obvious an unnatural story. This kind of thing doesn't happen every Tuesday and when you read through one thing after another makes you wonder at times, did this really happen? And there are plenty of people to tell us it didn't and that we're reading about legends and myths. There was a series on television not long ago which took that line and tried to tell us that there were a whole lot of legends gathered around the beginnings of the Israelite history. 
Well, is it myth or miracle? Why are there these problems? Well, the first is, the first reason is that there's no secular record of these events. Outside of the Bible, there is no trace whatever of any of this in any Egyptian records, for example. Now that is astonishing because they did keep pretty good records and that's one of the reasons that people say, oh, this must be legend. Well, I can think of a jolly good reason why the Egyptians didn't record this, can you? <laughs> yes, you've seen it already. I'm quite sure they didn't want to record for posterity such a humiliating experience as seeing their best chariots and charioteers drowned in the Red Sea. They didn't want to be humiliated. So I'm not troubled by the fact that there is no other record. The numbers involved create a problem for other people, two and a half million. I mean, that's a huge number. If they marched five abreast, I suppose the column would be about 110 miles long and would take, what, months to pass. It is an enormous number, two and a half million men, women and children, to say nothing of all their animals. And we're told even some Egyptians came with them. That's an interesting little point. So uh, that's a big number to get through the desert for 40 years where there's no food or water normally. So the numbers create a problem for some. Then there's the problem of the date of it. Because we have no other record outside the Bible, we don't know, for example, which pharaoh it was. And therefore we don't know which century it was. And there are two possibilities that these scholars look at. One is the 15th century BC and the other is the 13th. If it was the 15th, it was a pharaoh called Tutmose. But if it was the 13th, and to be frank, that's the one I go for, I believe all the evidence points to the 13th century, then it would be this pharaoh, and I've got a picture of him for you, just to show you what an impressive character he was. He even had four statues of himself made, not content with one, he had four. This is Ramesses II, and you can just see the top of two people at the bottom of the picture to show you the size of these monuments. Now this is what the Israelites were up against. See, we often treat Pharaoh as a, a little baddie. He wasn't, he was a very powerful emperor and he had the most powerful military force in the ancient world. A man who could cause those four statues to be erected of himself, carved out of the solid mountain, he was no mean character but in God's sight he was puny and it was no problem to God to deal with that man. But I believe you're looking at the likeness of the Pharaoh who was involved in the book of Exodus. Then there is division about the root of the Exodus and there are three possibilities we're going to have to look at. Again, we don't know exactly which route they took and there are three alternatives to consider, north, middle and south and we'll have to look at those. You see, all these questions have made scholars doubt whether they're reading fact or fiction, or perhaps faction, that modern mixture of fact and fiction which we're now accustomed to with TV historical plays. Well, it does boil down to faith. And uh, my faith says the most understandable explanation for the facts 
is the book of Exodus. And the facts are these. First of all, the existence of a nation called Israel. Now nobody can dispute there is a nation called Israel in the world today. Where did they come from? How did they get started? How did they ever become a nation if they were actually a bunch of slaves? We do know that from secular records, that they were a bunch of slaves. Something dramatic is needed to explain the existence of Israel. Or take another fact. It is a fact that every year every Jewish family celebrates the Passover. Now that's a fact. Every Jewish family does that. Why do they do it? You've got to have some explanation for such um, a ritual that has survived for so many thousands of years. Well, the book of Exodus provides the most reasonable explanation of that. Well, I could go, go on. There are fact after fact in our modern world which have to be accepted as facts for which you've got to find an explanation. And to me, the book of Exodus gives the best explanation of all the facts. Well, now let's run through the sections of this book and look at some of the points of interest. I can't give you a commentary on the whole book. I just want to take out of each section something that might have troubled your mind or some question that you might ask and try and give you an answer to that. Let's take multiplication and murder. The question that I have is why did they stay so long in Egypt? 400 years. They went down there in the time of Joseph and Jacob, you remember, because there was a famine and Egypt had bread and they simply went down there because there was more food. They went voluntarily, they were accepted as guests of the government, they were given a jolly good fertile piece of the Nile Delta called Goshen and there they were during the seven years of famine. But at the end of that time, why didn't they go back to their own land? Why did they stay? And in fact, they stayed so long that they outstayed their welcome. And that's when they were forced into forced labour. So why did they stay? Well, there's a human answer to that and a divine answer. And I'll give you both because so often there are two sides to every question. The human answer is they were jolly comfortable. It was much easier to make a living in the Nile Delta than it was on the hills of Judea, much easier. And uh, it was fertile, it was, the climate was warmer, there was no snow in the Nile Delta, there was in the hills of Judea. They were just altogether more comfortable in much the same way as Lot was more comfortable down in the Jordan Valley at Sodom and Gomorrah. The climate was very similar to the Nile Delta and it, it looks more comfortable and people like to live in a more comfortable climate where life is easier and that's why they stayed. Though God had never given them any land in Egypt, he said, I'm giving you the hills of Canaan, that's where you belong. But they stayed. Well, we can't blame them because we tend to do the same thing and they didn't want to leave until it was too late. Amazing how many Christians find a new house before they start looking for a church or start asking how they're going to serve God there because they've seen a house that they like.
See? Well, that's what they did. And they stayed in Egypt too long until it was too late and they weren't free to leave. And they were now un in the position of being forced labour. That's the human answer. And then and only then they cried out to God and say, God, why are you letting us be slaves in Egypt? Isn't it amazing how we get ourselves into problems then we start blaming God for not getting us out of them quickly. It's so human. But God didn't do anything about it for 400 years and we've got to ask why. Had they gone back as soon as the famine was over, they would have only been a few people and there was room for those few in Canaan. But now they had stayed so long that they were a large people and there was no room for them in Canaan because there were already other people living there. Now God was going to kick those people out but not until they were so wicked that they didn't deserve to live there. And God explains in the book of Genesis even, he explained to Abraham that your descendants will stay in Egypt a long, long time until the wickedness of the Canaanites is complete. And so before God could empty the land of the Canaanites for all of them now, he had to wait until they became so bad that it would be an act of justice and judgment to throw them out of the promised land and let all the Hebrew slaves in. So God waited until he could do that and that's the reason God gave for that 400 year gap. It's a long time to wait for God to answer your prayers. You know, you, you pass it down the generation, keep asking God and one day, one day he'll get us out of here. What patience you need to go on praying that. Four centuries but God heard and at the right time he acted. Well now they had gone through three oppressive decrees. The first was forced labour Second was to make bricks without straw. Do you realise what that meant? Have you ever lifted up two bricks, one made with straw and one without? The one without is about three times heavier. See, the more straw you put in, the lighter the brick and the easier it is to carry. But bricks without straw, that's heavy. And the Egyptians thought that if they did this, then they would they wouldn't have any energy left for leisure, mischief or sex. That was the idea and so that they'd be too tired even to make love and therefore the, the numbers would go down again. In fact, the harder the conditions they made for the Hebrew slaves, the more children they had. So they had to introduce a third decree and that was that all the baby boys had to be thrown in the Nile to the crocodiles. The Nile, of course, is the source of life to Egypt. There's no life apart from the Nile in Egypt but it was also the place of death for the Hebrew slaves. Well now, that's the first section. Bulrushes and the bush I don't need to say much about except to point out that Moses, like Joseph, was brought up in court, C-O-U-R-T and therefore was given the best education. If ever you go along the Thames Embankment in London, look for Cleopatra's Needle. There are two of them. One is in Rome, the other is on the Thames Embankment and those two were the gateposts 
of the Egyptian university. And when you see Cleopatra's needle, you're looking at something that Moses saw every day as a student. He walked past that and had a university education. This, of course, made him far better educated than any of the Hebrew slaves. And this, of course, is why he was able to write the first five books of the Bible. And it says he kept a, a careful record of everything and he collected people's memories and he put together these five books. His education as an Egyptian prince was not wasted. But of course all that came to a sudden end when he lost his temper with one of the Egyptian slave drivers and killed him and had to flee for his life. Interesting then that he actually spent 40 years in the very wilderness where later he would have to live for 40 years with the people of Israel so that again God prepared him for this. I don't know if you can do this, but I can look back on my pre-Christian days and see God preparing me for what happened. I remember going in for um, speaking competitions in the Young Farmers Club, little dreaming that in doing that God was getting me ready for what I do now. And God got Moses ready for leading his people through the wilderness by making him spend 40 years there by himself, being a shepherd, looking after a few goats or sheep. But then he murdered the Egyptian guard. The burning bush is very interesting, not so much for the bush as for Moses' excuses. God called Moses out of a burning bush and said, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. And then he said, now Moses, you're going to the people, going to be the man to draw my people out of Egypt. You were drawn out of the Nile, but you're going to draw my people out of Egypt altogether. And Moses made five excuses as to why he shouldn't do it. And again, you might identify with one of these. First, he said, I am insignificant. Who am I that anybody should take notice of me? Have you ever said that? Well, God said, I'll be with you. Who am I? <laughs> I'm the important one, not you. <laughs> so he tried a second excuse. He said, I'm ignorant. What shall I say? And God said, I make you a promise. I'll tell you what to say. So he made a third excuse. He said, I'm impotent. I can't convince them. They won't believe me. And God said, my power is going to be with you. You're going to do miracles. Then he said, I'm incompetent. I'm not eloquent. Actually, I had a stammer. He said, I, I can't put words together. Did you ever say that to God? And God said, all right, your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So that tells you what a prophet is. A prophet is simply someone who's a mouthpiece. So you tell your brother Aaron what to say and he will say it to Pharaoh. And that's all a prophet should do. He should just pass on a message. And the last excuse he made was, I'm irrelevant, send someone else. Here am I, send him. <laughs> Again, many have answered a call from God with that. Send someone else, please, not me. And that's when God promised him a partner. Let's move on to the plague and pestilences. Ten plagues, the Nile to blood, frogs, gnats and mosquitoes, 
flies, cattle disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. Now what do you notice about those ten plagues? The first thing I notice is that God is in total control of the insect world. Have you ever thought about that? See, in the book of Jonah, I remember telling you that the biggest miracle there is not the whale but the worm. I mean, God tells a worm what to do. A whale's easy. Training worms is a little harder, but God can do it. And God can tell mosquitoes and locusts what to do and where to go. He can tell frogs what to do. Tremendous sense of God's control of what is created in these plagues. But there's something else about these. First of all, do you notice their increasing intensity? There's a build-up from discomfort to disease, to danger, to death. The plagues gradually got worse as Pharaoh and the people refused to respond to these warnings. But I think what many Christian readers miss is that this was a religious contest. This was a contest between gods because every one of those plagues was an attack on a particular god worshipped by the Egyptians and that gives the plagues a real meaning. Let me just run through some of the Egyptian gods. There was Khnum, the guardian of the Nile, Hapi, the spirit of the Nile, Osiris and it was believed that the bloodstream of Osiris was the Nile. Then there was Hecate, a frog-like god, a god of resurrection. There was Hathor, a mother goddess, was a cow. And then there were a number of sacred bulls. The god Apis was a bull and the god Menevis was a bull, the sacred bull of Heliopolis. Then there was a god of medicine. Then there was a sky goddess, a goddess of life. Another one, Seth, was a protector of crops. And then there were four sun gods and on top of all that, Pharaoh was supposed to be divine as well. So that can you see that these plagues were specifically directed against Egyptian gods? And the message was very simple. This god of the Hebrew slaves is far more powerful than all your gods. And still they didn't listen. Now there's a bit of a problem about Pharaoh's heart here that I need to mention. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And some, I'm afraid, have made too much of this and erected a doctrine of predestination on it, especially in the light of Romans 9 where Paul talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And you can go overboard on predestination saying it's up to God to choose whether he softens someone's hearts or hardens them. It's his choice. We don't know why he makes these choices, but he makes the choice and he chose Pharaoh and he said, right, I'm going to harden his heart as if it was a bingo game. And I say that reverently, but that's the kind of God that sometimes is preached. A God who just picks names out of a hat and decides to save some and send others to hell and harden some and soften some. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you study this carefully, you'll find this. Ten times Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but the first seven, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And after he hardened it seven times, God says, right, if that's the course you're choosing, 
I'll help you to go further down that road and three times God hardened it for him. Now that puts a whole different light on it to me. God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had deliberately and repeatedly hardened his own heart. And indeed that's what God does by way of uh, punishment for people. He says, if you go down this road, all right, I'll help you down this road. If that's what you really want, then I'll give you a push. And the last book in the Bible says, let him that is filthy be filthy still. In other words, if that's the route you've chosen, God will help you down that route. But there's no arbitrary choice here. Pharaoh hardens his heart first and then God hardens it for him. I've just said that because so often the hardening of Pharaoh's heart has been misused to preach a kind of arbitrary predestination which the Bible doesn't teach. God responds to our choices and if we persistently choose the wrong way, God will help us along that route to demonstrate his judgment if we refuse to be a demonstration of his mercy. Then we come to the Passover, the feast and the firstborn. This has a direct connection with the tenth plague. The tenth plague was that every firstborn boy in every Egyptian family must die. But that would also happen to the Jews unless they did something about it. What they had to do was to paint some blood on their doorpost. Now blood is scarlet, maroon which is the hardest colour to see in the dark. don't know if you knew that, but blood is the hardest thing to see in the dark. You try it sometime. <laughs> but an angel would see it and the angel of death would come to Egypt that night and when he saw the blood on the doorpost in the dark, no street lamps, just dark, he would pass over that house. Now the first thing I want to say is they had to get that blood before they could put it on the doorpost, they had to have some, which meant that an innocent life had to be killed to get that blood. And then it had to be applied. If they didn't put it on the doorpost, it wouldn't work. So they had to obtain the blood and then apply it and they obtained it from what we call a lamb, but that to me is a misleading, a little cuddly white thing we think of. It's a ram, it's a one-year-old with horns, it's a strong animal and when we call Jesus the Lamb of God, it, it produces the wrong reaction. He is the Ram of God as well as the Lion of Judah and they had to take a ram, a fully grown ram. A one-year-old ram is equivalent to a 30-year-old man and that's what they took and they killed it to get the blood and put it on the doorpost. Then they put the blood outside, they took the body inside and they ate it after roasting it. And they ate it standing up with clothes on ready to leave at a moment's notice. They were going to walk for the next 40 years and they had to take emergency rations with them of unleavened bread. It's all, all there. And they keep that feast every year ever since and the youngest member of the family has to say, what does all this mean? And the oldest member of the family then says, this is what God did on the night when every firstborn boy died and we were saved because of the blood of the ram. 
You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.